A Brush With is sponsored by Bloomberg Connects, the arts and culture app. Created by Bloomberg Philanthropies, Bloomberg Connects lets you access museums, galleries and cultural spaces around the world on demand. Download the app to access digital guides and explore a variety of content. Hello, I'm Ben Luke and welcome to A Brush With, the podcast from the art newspaper in which I talk to artists about their influences from writers to musicians, filmmakers and of course other artists and the cultural experiences that have shaped their lives and work. And in this episode it's A Brush With, Camille Onro, who uses drawing, painting, sculpture, installation and film to reflect on a huge range of subject matter from anthropology and the climate emergency to biodiversity and motherhood to art history, literature and the excesses of the digital experience. At the heart of her practice is a concern with different forms of language and knowledge and how they are structured and composed. Her work emerges from deep research and is full of intriguing contradictions, awash with fragmentation and disruption, yet pregnant with humour and delight. Camille grapples with the stuff around us and within us. Her art explores distinctively how the empirical and the subjective, the outer world and her own private realm intersect. Camille was born in 1978 in Paris. She studied film at the École Supérieure des Arts Décoratifs in the French capital. She initially worked in the commercial world, making music videos before turning to art, and in her earliest art experiments, that link's evident. In the film Deep Inside from 2005, for instance, she took an existing pornographic film and then created animated drawings of morphing forms, including bodies, over the top of it in felt-tip pen, so that the original libidinous footage would appear in the negative spaces of the more melancholic and ambiguous drawings. Crucial to the film's effect was the music composed by Benjamin Morando with lyrics by Camille and Nicolas Kerr who performs the song, an aching, darkly romantic ballad that further subverts the nature of the porn imagery. Music and sound have also been a fundamental element of her later films. Psychopomp from 2011, for instance, explores the Frankenstein myth by collaging a range of footage, including people ascending climbing walls and shots from B-movies, footage of books and magazines and found amateur material with quotes from Mary Shelley's novel, with the imagery eventually becoming a setting for a performance by Joachim Boaziz and his band The Disco. Meanwhile, beats and the narrative voice are key factors in the piece that's up to now perhaps Camille's best known, Gross Fatigue from 2013, which won the Silver Lion for Promising Young Participant in the Venice Biennale in that year. I've seen this film on several occasions and it's an extraordinary experience. Using the form of a computer desktop with windows that repeatedly and rhythmically open, covering or partially veil previous imagery, it features a dizzying breadth of material, much of it shot during a Smithsonian Artist Research Fellowship in which Camille had access to the Smithsonian Archives of American Art, the National Air and Space Museum in Washington DC and the National Museum of Natural History. Camille worked with the poet Jacob Bromberg to compose a text that narrates a speculative vision of the origin of the universe, voiced stirringly by the Ghanaian-American multidisciplinary artist Akwate Arakatete against the soundtrack scored by It acts as a questioning of creation myths set against a blizzard of filmic sequences that suggests the instability of knowledge and the necessity of doubt, especially in the image-saturated digital world. And while she's been developing a radical approach to the moving image, Camille has also found a distinctive language in sculpture and two-dimensional forms, often combining the two in complex installations like the Pale Fox at the Chisholm Gallery in London in 2014. There, the gallery was painted a deep and enveloping ultramarine 
ultramarine blue with a carpet of the same colour, while a sinuous aluminium structure ran around the space. It was both a display system and a sculptural shape around which she placed her abstract but bodily bronzes as well as swift feathery drawings and found detritus. Again, there were systems at work, an idiosyncratic taxonomy of form. An indication of the originality of her thinking is in the piece called Is It Possible to Be a Revolutionary and Like Flowers, made between 2012 and 2014. Having left Europe to live in New York, Kami attempted to translate the books from which she was separated into Japanese ikebana, attempting to express a writer's personality and to translate their thought through the complex coded language of flower arrangement. Her work in bronze took a leap forward in ambition and scale after she visited Rome for a year-long residency at Fondazione. Memo in 2015, an experience in which she addressed the Baroque head-on through a series of frescoes as well as sculptures. The series of hybrid figures made for the exhibition, called Monday, reflected Camille's knack for applying the apparent lightness and speed of her drawing with a sense of impermanence and transformation into the often static form of bronze. And she's continued to develop these hybrid forms in her latest sculpture installations, made for shows at the Middelheim Museum in Antwerp in Belgium in 2022 and the Kunstmuseum San Gallen in 2023. In these most recent works, Camille has creatively and unflinchingly mined her experience of being a mother and explored the reality of caregiving and parenthood, the precious and intimate aspects alongside the societal and cultural meanings, processes and expectations that inevitably surround them. Those sculptures are clearly figurative but also suggestive of animals and plants and with elements of architecture and pure abstraction. And the animal kingdom has had a presence in her work throughout, from the dogs that populate her early film Sinopolis, made in Egypt in 2009, which explored the origins of art history in Egyptian art and Western culture's selective appropriation of it, through the series of drawings, 11 animals that mate for life, to the taxidermid animals filmed in Gross Fatigue, to the remarkable recent monumental sculpture 321 from 2021, featuring a crow-like bird standing defiant yet vulnerable amid detritus. And now she's in the middle of a new project, a feature-length film called In the Veins, which addresses the climate emergency and particularly the mass extinction of wildlife head-on, and it's this with which I began our conversation. Does she see In the Veins as part of a continuum exploring biodiversity in her work, or is she exploring new territory? I see it really as a continuation, in the sense that gross fatigue was already kind of a critique of the way the museum served as a protection against guilt and against fear of disappearance. There is also something a bit different from all the work that I've done that I'm for the first time considering doing something a bit longer, maybe even like a long feature film. It would not be feature film in the traditional sense. There will be no actor and actresses. But I'm thinking that maybe since the topic of the film is the growth of the children in an atmosphere of mass extinction and those two things are changing all the time every day it does feel a little bit like inappropriated that it's a short format and it makes sense for me to film over a long period of time as well so I've already started three years ago and I think I'll continue maybe two more years 
Right, that's really fascinating. Let's talk a bit about the use of animals in the work. Is it right that your mother was a taxidermist? And I wonder to what extent having that presence of dead animals in your life has been an inspiration. Because there's that really striking moment in Gross Fatigue where there's a man going through at the Smithsonian looking at dozens of taxidermized toucans. And to me, that, that was a kind of shocking image, actually. Yeah, it's true. I recently re-watched the film because we projected it in House Inverse, New York, and we did a talk with Legacy Russell. Mm. And it was really interesting to see how much people' attention were really focusing on that scene. I think that there is something very gentle in the gesture of the curator. He's the curator of birds at the mm-hmm. National History Museum at the Smithsonian in Washington. And I was fascinated because it did feel like the bird was still alive, even though they are dead. But they look alive because they are taxidermized, but also because he's not just delicate, he's tender in his gesture. And then it made me think about how we love animals that we can touch, we love animals that we can capture with images, and this is almost impossible in the wildlife. And somehow, I think, the museum realize a sort of childish fantasy, you know, to touch wild animals. You can see any children, they will want to touch animals. The minute they see them, every parent spends its time on the street saying, like, don't touch the dog, Mm. don't feed the monkeys at the zoo, don't do this, don't do that. Because the attraction towards wildlife is a very primary instinct of ours to be attracted to wild animals. So this is something I'm, I'm really interested in because I do think the museum is not an adult. The museum has also some very childish impulses. And I think that th- that's something that is very much like what this scene of Gross Fatigue represents, right? At this moment, the voiceover is also kind of breaking and becomes very vulnerable. And it's also the first moment in the film where the voice is not talking, but it's singing. Singing a cappella, we say in French. I don't know how you say in English. Yeah, a cappella. Yeah, yeah. Same word. Yeah, yeah. And so there is this sort of state of fragility, but really it's our emotional fragility that we also contemplate at that moment. And the question I'm asking in the new film is like, how can we use that tenderness and that fascination we have for the wild world and put it toward the use of protection of that world? And I notice this ambivalence every day when I film white animals that I'm always asking, oh, can we do another shot? But the slot is exhausted and the snake is escaping the hands. And so there is always a sort of like tension between our desire to see and to capture and the necessity of white life to avoid humans to survive. And sorry, to go back to your mother with the idea of having taxidermized animals around you growing up, was that significant in terms of how you then brought those images into your work later? Yes, it it was a little bit scary. I I was not allowed to that room where my mother was doing the taxidermy, so I have very few memory. I did go, of course, even though I was not allowed. And I remember I opened the drawer and there was all the fake eyes and glass that were rolling in my direction. That was so scary. And I remember running out of the room. But there was something both fascinating and disgusting, I guess, with this activity. I'm sure. And I was able to capture and to sense that as a child. And so later, when I encountered the Smithsonian curator, for sure that was part of my fascination. Also, my mom was also helping an ornithologist of the museum in France very much. So we were also going 
to put the ring on the swallows you know, oh, yes, yeah. in spring. And we would often collect birds that were wounded, heal them, bring them to a hospital. My mom was very knowledgeable about birds. She also had all the different tools to call them. So in a way, the world of birds was very present in our life as children. So maybe that's also the reason of the insistence on birds and gross fatigue. Absolutely. And of course, the world of birds has fed into your work in so many different ways. It's in the drawings. There's that extraordinary sculpture, 321, which it seems to me is, it's a crow-like bird, which it seems like a, a nest of kind of detritus. So is the bird a kind of symbolic form in your work? Do you want it to contain a variety of meanings, if you like? Yes, it does. I remember reading, and this is not me, it's uh, Lévi-Strauss who said that the birds were one of the richest symbolism and like one of the most frequent totem animal because it's the further away from the life of man. Because they live up in the sky and the way they reproduce, the way they organize, the way they live, the way they migrate. We want to take inspiration for that, but the reality is like we humans live more like wolves. Um, <laughs> <laughs> absolutely, that's absolutely right. And of course, wolves, dogs, they feature in your oh, work dogs. too. So. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's just, this is, it's really interesting. The dog is never chosen as a totem animal. Actually, I wrote a little text about that, why the dog is never a totem, why the dog is not a very rich image, because it's too close to our world. I mean, additionally, the dog has been living with us and is imitating us. And we also imitate dogs in many ways. But yeah, it's fascinating how the birds have been used. Also the language of the birds, the idea of code, how a language of the bird is another name for poetry. Hmm. But that was also used in coding system during wars. So I'm thinking also about the pigeon that were holding cameras in World War Two. Yeah. The bird has always been an image of the global vision, a vision from the sky. And mapping was a key element of war. Like recently, I just did a, a big series of drawings of birds because I was so concerned about the war. I mean, both war, the war uh, between Russia and Ukraine and Israel and uh, Palestine. But I thought there's really something extremely triggering with the birds in the sense that the birds actually do not respect any limits. It is crossing geographical limits, so we envy this ability of the bird to not have any frontier, to not have any limits. So we've been always trying to do that. Absolutely. And of course, birds migrate, which is, you know, talking about global issues, it's probably the most central issue of so much human life at the moment. And, and birds, as you say, freely migrate and we celebrate their migration in a way that it seems so many politicians would never celebrate migration of humans. Exactly. Yeah. Jona Friedman, who was a dear friend of mine, I remember he once said, I wonder why nobody considered like seasonal migration as a solution for economics of uh, climate change. Mm. We could all migrate to the south during winter and we could use the area of the world where things grow for agriculture and then live in area where nothing can grow. Uh, instead of destroying lands that have very good land to grow things. like He had this whole idea, of, like I don't think anybody would consider right now, but very interesting ideas around economy of energy in relationship with migration. In the trailer for In the Veins, you make a very interesting point that you want to create a work that is somewhere between activism, experimentation and art. Would you say that that's a new mode for you? Or do you think that those elements have always been part of the work? 
It's a little bit new in the sense that deliberately in Gross Fatigue and many of my other works, I try to avoid being too politically simple or like to mm -hmm. being too decipherable. Like I think ethics is also comes when you ask yourself questions. And if the artwork you're seeing is very determined and very decided and very clear on its message, it becomes activism, ideology, and it's not an artwork anymore. That being said, I started to be really interested when I read an article in the New York Times about how to communicate on the climate crisis. And I realized one of the reasons I want to work on it as an artist is also because I'm interested in how can I convince myself. So there's a little bit of arrogance in it as well. But I'm interested in those questions because it does seem that the communication around climate change is very unique. Like we as humans have never been confronted to a problem that is so global and that it's so out of our scale. So I think the problem of action is the problem of representation right. when it comes to ecology. I think most people, even though they are being told there's a crisis, the only thing they see is it's hotter in summer than it used to be, right. or I'm not wearing my puffy jacket as much. I didn't see snow and Christmas last year and this year, and I miss it. I think we as humans, we have too much of a narrow way to experience things to really understand what climate crisis is. And so I'm interested in how to speak about that and how the minor and the major, how the global and the intimate can connect to each other and be an illustration of each other. So this is really what I'm trying to do. But as I was doing it, I realized that I would kind of like to give some footage to activist organization for them to be able to communicate. And even I thought maybe I would like to offer my own services in terms of like making activist film, activism posts. And I've been doing it on my own for a while and uh, some T-shirts and other things. Mm. But then I realized I'm actually, it's my language too, because I'm also a little bit of a cartoonist. I like to do you know, very simple drawings. And even though the films have more of a complex aspect to it, it works on the emotion, on the grief, the climate grief, but also like the different process of emotion in relationship with raising children, sense of responsibility, sense of powerlessness, which also relate to childhood. Because mm -hmm. in a way, this climate crisis make us all feel like children, like our government are not listening to us. This is why Greta Thunberg, in a way, I think, became such an important figure because she represents that. Like, she's a child, and we all feel like children. We all think we are treated like children. We are really, like, ignored in our basic needs when it comes to the climate crisis. But it's also because, obviously, it's the children who will pay the highest price of the decisions that are made now. Absolutely. I wondered also, you mentioned about the sort of cartoon aspect of your work that's been a consistent element, but also it seems to me that your language is one of disruption and in, in terms of activism, in terms of making striking points, to be able to disrupt in your artistic language is a very useful tool if you're planning to make work which is both experimental and somehow activist. I guess I felt really like unfitted for the art world when I started uh, making artworks because the artists who were in focus at that moment were having very consistent aesthetics and I was very attracted to inconsistent aesthetics 
my icon, and it started when I was 15, was Saul Steinberg. I actually bought at the flea market a big portfolio of his drawings, and we had a, a large poster of him in our kitchen yeah. when I was a child. So one of the things of Steinberg I really love was the way in the same drawings there is character who all have different style. You know, one is Cubist and one is Arabesque and one mm. is like a Mickey Mouse, and they all are in the same city. It's very much inspired by New York. I mean, New York is exactly this. Every day I go to the studio and I see a Steinberg image with somebody wearing cowboy boots and another who has a very extravagant fur coat. And the line <laughs> of the silhouette of all the people in the street are all so different. I like the idea of inconsistency because I see a sort of freedom in it. I see the capacity for me as an artist to not be easily boxed and also to just to not feel constrained by my own style. In a way, you could separate artists or the artist who likes to do the same thing and the artist who likes to constantly jump around. Like Picabia is also a monkey. <laughs> I, I think I'm very much part of that family. And I guess the digital world and the younger generation than me has made it actually more possible to exist in that way. Uh, I would say. So disruption is, I think, very much the language of the generation of artists who are very highly inspired by new media, because new media is a disruption. We're constantly interrupted. So the state of overstimulation and constant interruption that we are living in, where one second we're looking at an image of uh, fashion, and the second after is an image of war and the second after it's a poem or a very uh, complicated passage of a book that requires a lot of subtlety and in-depth and so those different level of attention that we need to navigate when uh, something is very simple and then something is very complex when emotion is very easy and then emotion is very painful these are really what we are living every day this is our life and I think that in a way being able to communicate that in my artwork has been very crucial the recent years and collage. Also in painting, like the new series, The Do's and Don't, is also a collage technique, has been yeah, a very useful tool. Let's move on to the questions that we ask all our guests. And I think you may already have answered this question, but who was the first artist whose work you loved? <laughs> yes, uh, Saul Steinbeck. Yeah. yeah. I mean, there's more. Louise Bourgeois was a very important artist for me because she was a woman and she was doing massive sculpture. Also, she had a similar background as mine, like she hated her father and she had a mother who was a, a craft maker or an artist. Mm. She also had a name who was a, a, the name of a man because her parents wanted her to be a boy. And it was the same for me, like I was a second child, but my parents would have preferred, mm. I think, to have a boy since they already had a girl. So they named me Camille which is also the name of a boy. So we share many similarities and also sort of like discomfort with mm. the idea of being a mother, I would say, and interest in analysing that discomfort as well. I was going to say, when immediately, as you mentioned, Bourgeois, I thought of your most recent works and the exhibition Wet Job because you've really explored motherhood and you've done it in a really unflinching way. It's both tender but also very honest, it seems to me, about the experience of motherhood. 
Yeah, there is something, I guess, in in the work of Riz Bourgeois, it's so mind-blowing that, I mean, it was so early in the sense, and she was so isolated. I'm glad now that I look around and I see so many other women artists writing about it and making interesting representation. Just yesterday, I read Kali Spooner text, Mm. And, and somebody posted about her performance and about my book, Milky Ways, in the same post. Ah, and yeah. this woman was saying, like, being lifted by the voice of other. That's really what I feel um, now when it comes to this topic, that uh, Moira Davy and Maggie Nelson and Suzanne Suleiman, Ursula K. Le Guin, there's really, like, a, something very important and really beautiful is happening right now, I think, around the discourse and I wouldn't say motherhood. I think it's more like the caregiving and the beginning of life. That's a really important distinction because, again, linking to the film that you're working on now, you're talking about care as a concept more generally and the frightening prospect of bringing up children in, in the current environment as well as the experience of being a mother. It must be a huge dilemma as well as giving you tremendous sort of positive experiences. I, it's a conflictual place. It's unresolved. I think it's really an unresolved problems. And therefore, it became something that I wanted to work on, as often, actually, my work is unresolved problems. Actually, it's interesting because a lot of people expect me to be very digitally savvy because they know gross fatigue and mm. uh, office of reply email. But those work were made out of, like, my discomfort with technology like mm -hmm. I open too many windows my computer crash all the time the do's and don'ts series of work with all the different computer windows is also kind of like a illustration of my everyday life which is constantly pushing technology where it should not be mistake impulsive behavior I'm really absent-minded too so it, sometimes I look at my iPhone and I also have 200 like different apps roaming at the same time <laughs> that I'm not even able to to kind of use WhatsApp anymore same goes for pictures I think there is the idea of inadequacy a little bit behind mm. a lot of things in my work to go back to motherhood there's this feeling of inadequacy as well like I think that's uh, I don't really like too much when people say, oh, your work is about motherhood, because it just reminds me I'm a mother, which is like, oh, what happened to me? Like, well, it's frightening when I realize that I do not see myself as a mother when I work. I, I guess I see myself more as a child. And I also start, you know, reconnecting with the emotion because I, I guess that's part of the job of motherhood. And this is a very scary part is that in order to understand your child's needs, you need to go back to your own childhood when you were small children and you also were not able to communicate your own needs and you were not correctly being held and you were not heard when you were crying and and this is an extremely scary place right so i guess this new body of work for me is more related to the beginning of life you know how language arrives and what language is before its words that's very much what my sculpture work is trying to do. And also the different relationship with authorities, code of behaviors, manners, etiquette. I have a lot of British books about etiquette. <laughs> That's interesting. <laughs> that yeah. I'm using for the do's and don'ts. 
Right. So that's interesting. I mean, and but also one of the things that really struck me about the wet job series is that while it's clear that there's a really searing kind of critique element to those works, you also seem like sculpturally you're having a lot of fun. There's a lot of wit in there. There's a work called Iron Deficiency, for instance, and that's obviously playful. So you don't abandon playfulness when you're exploring an issue which is of, as you say, is conflicted or is in some way troubling to you. Because it's, I think it's the only way. I think the more something is painful and dramatic, the more you need humor to be able to address it. Mm-hmm. I guess, in a way, I also found there's something very kind of like comedy-like about being a parent. That was something I didn't really expect, but I grew more and more interested by the tactics of humor and playfulness and irreverence as i said before it's also because you in order to correctly interact with them you need to remember that you also were a child and i think it's very important for your own children they also remember you were a child and they also you can connect on a level of playfulness and i guess that habits of uh, playfulness i'm very good at it now like i i'm training every day in child you know language and playfulness and inversion and distortion and my five-year-old recently pretended he peed in his bed and I was like what what did you do like where did this happen and then he he just said no no um actually it's a joke I just went to the bathroom so he said I went to pee in my bed instead of I went to pee in the bathroom and it's like you know this is this habit of like constantly changing a word and I think we artists all we do that you know, to kind of like come for the unexpected. And coming for the unexpected is also how humor function. It's interesting because humor also function with repetition, right? That the more you repeat something, then it also the more become funny. Yeah. But the mechanism of humor, I think, is something you learn with small children and also as an artist, and it's, it's a good training. Let's talk about historical artists. Which historical artists do you turn to the most? I mean, I look a lot at, you know, the painting on the Greek pot. Mm, Yes. This is something I've been looking at a lot because I think it's the best line because I'm very interested in having a really good line when I draw or when I paint. Mm. And so I think this is something I've been looking at a lot. It sounds really cheesy, but Picasso, I've been looking at the way Picasso draw a lot, Mm. also his sculpture, Mm. his engraving It's interesting you talk about that sort of good line that you were talking about, because interesting, lots of people seem to compare your drawing to Matisse and his wonderful childlike drawings that he made and so on, those extraordinarily perfect images. It's interesting you raised the idea of Picasso, but have you directly looked at Matisse's drawings or is it just in a way... No, I've looked at Matisse a lot and I wish I was more like Matisse. (laughs) I think Matisse has something really spiritual in his work Hmm. that he managed to reach through an absence of ego somehow, a depersonalization in a way in the work of, of Matisse. And I think that Picasso, uh, there's constant, you know, a mix of cruelty and libido and humor and like self-disgust. And I hope when I get older, I become more like Matisse. But I think that I don't have that calm you know perfect line my line is more agitated i look also a lot at warhol drawings also i've looked at warhol drawings a lot oh they're gorgeous aren't they yeah 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 Maya Lesning, I've looked at her paintings a lot. Oh, yes. Uh, yeah, she yeah. had a huge, huge, huge impression on me. 
But I discovered it quite late. Alice Neal as well, I guess they had a huge influence on what I do. There's a sort of element, it seems to me, that throughout your work, that sort of drawing is a constant even when you're working in other media. Your sculptures, I feel, have a very drawn feel about them and I mean in that in the best sense you can feel almost like the aspect of drawing within the kind of construction of the sculpture would you say that drawing sort of underpins everything yes 100 (laughs) (laughs) percent I'm really glad that you noted that for the sculpture because this is something I'm really trying to protect that's why I'm not using 3d unless I have already understood exactly what I want to do because I think it's very important the line is the start and uh, I want my sculpture to keep the energy of the sketch and if they lose the energy of the sketch then then they become heavy and I I don't like sculpture that is heavy and doesn't look like it's about to transform into something else or move. Mm -hmm. So I always, always try to protect the energy of the sketch. I make several sketches of course but I always give the sketch to the fabricator when we make the model and I say you just do exactly like the sketch no matter if it's not stable I don't care I just want to see exactly exactly my sketch on one particular angle and once you've done that we start moving around and we start building the other angles but for me it's always important that the energy of the sketch is respected and yeah I draw every day I think for me the drawing is really the core of my practice Let's talk about contemporary artists then. You already mentioned a couple, but which contemporary artists do you most admire? I love looking at the work of young artists. Some of them are my friend. I love the work of Olivia Erlanger, hmm. American sculpture. I love the work of Elizabeth Jagger, oh, yes. another American sculpture. I love Arya Dean. I think she's so brilliant. I mean, all these artists are younger than me, <laughs> but uh, Sandra Mujinga, I'm very, very much admiring her work. Mm-hmm. If I think about my generation or older, I would say I really like Pierre Huyghe. He's been very much a support in my career and an inspiration as well. Did you work in his studio for a bit? Yes, I worked at his studio. It was very short. Right. It was only a few months. Mm -hmm. But I remember I was bringing my dog and he spent a lot of time playing with my dog and smoking and uh, cigarettes (laughs) with me at the cafe. (laughs) And that was really fascinating for me, how somebody who's that famous and established and doing the Venice Biennale would prioritize playing with the dog, smoking cigarette with me. But then I understood that it was like he was thinking all the time and it was helpful for him to talk with someone Mm. and to kind of like develop his idea as he was talking. And that was also work. And also he was so insecure, he would come up with a different idea every day. And that really gave me confidence to see that you could be a highly insecure, anxious person, always destroying the things you've been trying to build and be successful. That was very, very much encouraging. I'm sure it was. Also, in the Palais de Tokyo show that you did, because it was the carte blanche show, you get to choose other artists to include in that show. And it was an interesting selection of artists. Again, artists that you were very familiar with. I think a couple were your friends or artists that you were close to, but others you'd chosen because even though you didn't know them, you just really liked the work. And I thought that must be an interesting challenge for an artist to curate other artists' work. Yeah, it's a super interesting challenge. I love it. But I have to say, I get really sucked in. 
when I do that and I, and then I abandon everything else and I just do that. Also because I'm very OCD, I love to make lists. And it's very difficult for me to end the list. So every time I've curated the show, it was a, a disaster for the co-curator because, <laughs> <laughs> because it was always a moment where like, okay, we have to close the list now. And I was like, no, 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 one more. <laughs> when we curated the show together with Rue back at Trib, I think that was, in a way we had a lot of like conflict making the list for uh, the show we curated was called Pothole Puddle and Portals, mm -hmm. which was actually inspired by Steinberg. Like Steinberg was a, the starting point of that show at Sculpture Center. I could see the difference between like a proper curator and an artist curator. And I think in a way our couple, Ruba and I, really was a caricature of that a little bit. But I think in a way was maybe the most successful curation I've ever done. Palette Tokyo was, was also very exciting, but in a way was difficult at Palette Tokyo. is like, where do you find the balance between inviting artists and then showing your own works and you want to show artists that are working on the same line as you are that do a counterpoint which space are you giving plus you have to handle all these different little egos because we <laughs> all our artists are a little bit crazy in our own ways and none of them have a different type of neurosis so handling <laughs> artist expectation is such a hard job i realized myself i was like now i have so much admiration for curators a brush with is sponsored by bloomberg connects the arts and culture app the free app offers access to more than 300 cultural organizations through a single download with new guides being added regularly among the most recent additions to the app are the Chrysler Museum of Art in Norfolk, Virginia, La Brea Tarpits, one of the natural history museums of LA County, and the Queen's Museum in New York. Among the guides on Bloomberg Connects are several museums in which Camille Enro has shown her work, including the Drawing Centre in New York and ICA Boston. If you download the guide to the ICA, you'll find a comprehensive section on the Institute's exhibitions, including Forecast Form, Art in the Caribbean Diaspora, 1990s to Today, which runs a until the 25th of February 2024. It features audio and video responses to the key works in the show, including those by Anna Mendieta and Keith Piper. To explore digital guides to all the partnering institutions, download the app today. It's available from the App Store and Google Play, and you can keep up to date by following Bloomberg Connects on Facebook, X formerly known as Twitter, and Instagram. What do you have pinned to your studio wall? I mean, right now I have a picture of the birth of my second child that was on my screen of my computer and I've re-photographed it four times so it's completely blurred. Ah. And I printed it with uh, Sigmar Polke printed and I made some kind of like brush stroke on it. So it's a, it's a painting. It's one of the do's and don't. Ah, right, okay. So it's a work because I, I haven't finished it. So it helps me to put it on the wall and pretend it's finished, then I immediately think it's not finished and I have to <laughs> do something about it. But the fact that it's on the wall and it requires two people to help me put it down, then I wait for the moment where I understand what to do before I do it, which is like a bit better. Which museum or gallery do you visit the most frequently? Uh, I mean, now I live in New York. I would say that I go actually very often to the Guggenheim Museum. The reason being that you can stroll up and down there's no staircase mm. i live on the upper west side so when i cross central park the guggenheim is the shortest uh, way 
So it, it's nothing to do with the Gnaim program. It's really that it's the closest museum from where <laughs> I live. And it's very convenient with a strolley. When I was pregnant, my husband was pushing me with, with like a, a rolling chair up and down. <laughs> I really enjoy this, this, the architecture of the Guggenheim. I think it's a fantastic architecture. I wish they would do more sculpture show there. I think they do a little bit too many paintings exhibition. That's my only regret. But as an experience, it's a fantastic museum. It's really interesting, isn't it? Because when you read about the Guggenheim architecture, you get a variety of responses, but you get some people saying it's too insistent. It doesn't privilege the art. It privileges the architecture and the art has to come second place all the time. But it seems to me that contemporary artists have consistently used it in most interesting ways. I remember Paul Chan used it really interestingly, for instance. And so it, it seems to me that it takes a certain kind of mentality to view that kind of space as a, as a gift as opposed to a problem. Yeah, you're right. I think that maybe there is something about the circular, the spiral shape that somehow for me is so interesting because it has to do with some kind of madness and evolution. This is really the way things grow, right? The fern, mm -hmm. the seeds. So it's pretty fascinating. You see, I said, like, it doesn't matter what the program is. So maybe the artists who criticize the museum for being too important compared to the artwork itself, are also right. I think both things are true. But I think when you go see an exhibition, you go to see both. You go to see artworks, but you also go to have an experience in the building. So for me, the cafeteria is important. That's another thing that I like about the Guggenheim. They have lots of like gluten-free pastries and snacks. <laughs> That's great. Which cultural experience changed the way you see the world? Mm, I mean, the, the first thing that comes to my mind is meeting Jona Friedman. Oh, yeah. I did this workshop in Venice and he made a talk and he started the talk by saying everything I learn about architecture, I know from looking at the way my dogs sit. And I was like, this is exact, like, that's so interesting for me because I also spent a lot of time looking at my dog and being interested in the way the dog, you know, what position the house he chooses. Like different position he sleep. I love to draw animals. I think it's also true for cats. Although I think that if a cat was the inspiration for a city, it would be very erratic. But <laughs> <laughs> that would be an interesting project. Dogs are a more solid, dependable yes. <laughs> city. Yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> it would be very, very anarchic. But maybe it would be Sin City, you know, like the cartoon. <laughs> Absolutely. But I think the experience of meeting Yona, talking with him and his books, the architecture of survival, how to live without being a chief and without being a slave. You have a dog, he chose you. Achievable utopia. I keep thinking about it every day. The idea of like how we can realize something that looks impossible, but just doing it with a smaller scale. I guess that's what we all try to do, artists. Yeah, it's, it's so interesting, isn't it, that Friedman is an example. Is that Cedric Price is another sort of architectural presence, but somebody who was a thinker who's influenced so many other disciplines. It seems to me that both Friedman and Price had this ability to posit ideas that set artists free across multiple disciplines. Yeah, totally. Because he was so curious and he was totally a monkey mind as well. I remember his library had a book about Gemini and then the history of musical instrument in the Middle uh, Age and then uh, feminism in Latin America. He was interested by the most random topics. 
And I guess that was also something that was inspiring for me because I think I was already a little bit like that. And again, a bit like with Pierre, meeting Yona was kind of like giving me a sort of sense of like, this is okay to do that, to be like that, to kind of jump on one interest to another one. There is also a value in this sort of horizontal way to navigate life and knowledge. You've mentioned books a couple of times. So which writers or poets do you return to the most? I return to Hélène Sixou a lot. I think mm. she's a major writer. I like also because she, like me, you know, she's a uprooted French. So there is lots of use of different language in her writing, which I tend to do myself when I write. But I, it's very pleasant for me to read also somebody who do that. Louise Bourgeois does the same in her diary. Mm. There is uh, Clarisse Lispector. Yes. is a writer I often return to and I found a lot of like feeling of complicity in a way there is I mean again <laughs> kind of a bit cheesy but uh, Joyce Joyce was tremendously important in terms of the Palais de Tokyo show wasn't he I love the fact that you found in Ulysses what you described as a superstructure for that exhibition which seemed to me to be such a brilliant way of conceiving an exhibition you know in terms of one of the most complicated and you know visionary works of writing yeah but the structure of Ulysses is very simple it's a day. It's uh, how the day unfold. So the inspiration I got from Joyce, or I would say just the tip, you know, because it's a bit stupid in a way, is that when your work and your mind function in a way that's very much like an arabesque that is going multi directions and is complex and you want to keep nuance and you want to confront voices and you have many voices and you hear many voices in your work... How do you make that digestible for an audience? Like one of the solutions Joyce had is to use this very simple structure, which is the day. And I, this is what I did for Palitokyo. I used the structure of the week. And I knew it was a challenge for me to do an exhibition so big because I don't do large, glamorous, grand gesture, right? A lot of the artists who came to the Palitokyo before me and after me do this large glamorous glorious gesture and I'm not able to do that I'm, I'm a cat like I'm jumping a thousand different direction and it's a lot of little small little trays on the floor <laughs> <laughs> I needed a structure that would make people this is not insane it's familiar I can go through it absolutely I wanted to ask you about another work again a kind of means of using writing through another medium which is the work that was called Is It Possible to Be Revolutionary and to Like Flowers? In which, is it right that basically you use the technique of Japanese flower arranging ikebana to evoke the spirit of writers, effectively, from a library that you didn't have with you? Yes. So this work comes a little bit like a sort of grieving process as well, because I moved to the U.S., and all my stuff was in a container and it got blocked by the custom because it contained a lot of the things that are now in the installation, the pale fog that are restricted uh, for export, mm. like pornographic manga, animal parts, this kind of stuff. So everything was blocked for a year and a half. And that was the year also where I was working on, on Venice Bainol. It was, it was a similar two years, 2011, 2012. Mm-hmm. Basically, between 2010 and 2013, I worked on the Ikebana because I was missing these books and, and I realized I would like to find a way to represent this voice because a book is a voice, like every author talks to you with a different tone, with a different, you know, 
phrasing and um, some of the books had never been translated in English uh, language. Uh, I think right. about Michel Leris, for example, who's not very famous in the U.S. Very few of his writing has been translated and he's one of my favorite authors. So I thought somebody comes to my studio and I talk about Michel Leris. I want to be like, this is him. This is his portrait, you know, a bit like, oh, my father was like that. My mother was like this. This is a photography of them. So this is a little bit how I thought about the cabana for them to be a way to condense a spirit and a personality. And it unfolded for a long time because it became very addictive. It's very pleasurable to, to work with flowers. I also realized as I was doing it that I needed to learn more about the actual art of flower arrangement, and I needed to learn from the masters. So I, I, I worked with Master of Ikebana from the Sogetsu School, three different masters. Later, we did the project in Japan as well with the Sogetsu School, which was a fantastic experience. Mm -hmm. So the pleasure in that project was also the pleasure of continuity in a way. I think earlier you were saying that my work disrupts itself a lot. Mm -hmm. yeah. And I think that in a way the Ikebana work is maybe an exception in the sense that it builds a sense of continuity for me. What music or other audio do you listen to while you're working? I have playlists, and the playlist I use mostly for drawing is a playlist called Moon, and they have different number one, two, three, four. Like right now, I'm doing the number four because I, I, I listen to it too often and I get annoyed, so I need to make new, but it also needs to be consistent. And one of the favorite of those playlists is maybe Laurie Anderson. Okay. I love Laurie Anderson music. Right. A few songs from Nick Cave right now. My first Moon playlist used to be very electronic and experimental mm -hmm. music and ambient, Japanese ambient music. And now I'm a little bit more like I'm listening to 90s rock song like P.G. Ave, oh, Tim great, Sticks, yeah. Nick Cave, Iggy Pop songs. I Want to Go to the Beach is my favorite song of the playlist. I would oh, like to great. find more like that, but... <laughs> <laughs> That's great. And it's interesting you say this moon playlist you listen to while you're drawing. Do you have different music that you put on for different forms of work? Yes, I have a playlist for each activity. So when I run, I have a playlist and I have a playlist to go to the studio and I have a playlist to go back home. And they are different ones. I have a playlist when I paint, but I do very complicated things and I need to be extremely concentrated. I, I actually don't listen to the moon playlist because the moon has something more emotional. Ah, interesting. It kind of highlights my emotions. And if I need to do something really difficult and paint on a large scale and if I fuck up, it's, it's a big fuck up. So I have to play this for that, which is really only ambient Japanese, but with very few beats and very continuous music. So it's in a way, I would call it the music for a difficult task. And then I have music to dance, of course. Of course. And I have playlists for holidays as well, because the worst <laughs> thing for me is to be on holiday and to have one of the songs of my painting playlist 
comes at the radio or anywhere. It's, it's, this is really disruptive. You have to separate work and play with your musical exactly. choice, absolutely. Yes. Music's obviously been such a central part of your work. Right from the start, I was thinking about your early film, Deep Inside, where you use a pornographic film and you're animating over the top of it. The music is absolutely central to the delivery of that piece, isn't it? Yes, completely. You know, I started doing music video. Right. When I was at the art school, I started doing music video. And for a long time, I thought I could make a living out of this because I was actually making a lot of music video. Mm. And I really loved doing that. Actually, the first musician for who I did a music video, they are the one I invited to do Deep Inside soundtrack. Right. So it was nice because it was kind of a bit of a reverse. And I gave them reference of songs I liked. And um, I knew exactly what type of beats, what type of voice I wanted. We wrote the lyrics together with the singer. This is Nicolas Kerr. Yeah, Nicolas Kerr. He um, was an incredible singer. He was a singer mm. for a band called Pony Oaks. Mm -hmm. And he died, uh, unfortunately, uh, during COVID. Ah, right. And in terms of how, like, for instance, in Gross Fatigue, again, music is such a central part of the delivery of the swelling nature of that piece the way that it builds and builds it's it seems to me that of course film is inevitably connected to the soundtrack and so on but again it's it's about disruption and the role that music can play in sort of not necessarily undermining the visuals but complementing them sometimes and sometimes working against them there's a sort of tension if you like in the way that you use music in the films it strikes me Yes, because I think what's key for me is that it doesn't happen one after the other. Yeah. I'm building the two of them at the same time. So, for example, for Gross Fatigue, we wrote the poem with the poet Jacob Romberg. Mm -hmm. And then Joachim Boisis made a music soundtrack. The reference was, you know, very minimal hip-hop songs like Pharrell Williams' Drop It Like It's Hot. Yeah. And then we worked with the singer, Akwateo Hakatete, who's an artist. Mm -hmm. And that was... The first step, but I start when I edited the film, I kept editing the soundtrack at the same time. So there was no defined duration. So we recorded 20 minutes of the song. And then as I was editing the film, I was like cutting part of the sound and recomposing the song itself. And for the other film, Sinopolis, or it was even more extreme that I would constantly do a back and forth between the music and the sound, so constantly editing the two at the same time. So it's interesting because many people have the feeling the music has been done for the film or the film is an illustration of the music, but really the two of them are being made a little bit at the same time. Also, very often, just before I finish to edit, I go back to shooting again. So it would be difficult for me to work with a traditional team of cinema just because my process is very experimental and I like to protect the possibility that anything is possible at any moment. Even very extreme choice like going back to shooting images just like one week before doing the master. I, I think these are necessary, I mean, I guess for my process. At this point, I normally ask what other media influence your work, but I'd particularly like to talk about, you mentioned manga earlier on, and I know that anime film was particularly an early reference for you. Is it a continuing reference? Because it seems to me that certainly in your drawings, again, I can see elements of manga and anime in those. 
Yeah, yeah, it's a big reference. And I was using a little bit less at the moment I started to paint, I think, mm -hmm. because I was really looking at painting again. Like I was really looking at Maria Lasning. I was really looking at Alice Neal. I was looking at Manet. But now I think I'm in a phase where I'm looking at anime a lot again. Like Disney, like the early Disney are so fantastic, mm. especially representation of speed and fall and distortion, people fighting. There's so much cruelty in anime world, you know, so much member being like stretched and distorted and twisted. I'm really interested in uh, also Tex Avery, but it's funny that in my memory, Tex Avery was much more sadistic than Disney. But when I was looking at Disney again with my children, I realized that actually Disney is much more sadistic and Tex Avery is more erotic. But do you know that on Disney Channel, like the, the Netflix of Disney, mm -hmm. yeah. if you put who's watching and you put kids, you can't see any of the old Disney cartoon. Really? Because they've all been banned for children. Yeah. That's intriguing. How yeah, it's, it's really interesting. I can see why I think that it's true that those early cartoons have a lot of violence in it. Uh, they have a lot of stereotype as well. But the thing that's really fascinating and I wish we would see more in the production of anime and programs for children is the capacity to create story without language. You know, just a dog, you know, running after a seal. Uh, I'm thinking of this cartoon, like the, the puppy. It's called the puppy. It's like right. Pluto is, has to babysit a baby seal. <laughs> right. Yes, I think I've seen it. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> like the capacity for a story to evolve without any other language than things slipping, running after each other, deconstructing, breaking. That, I think, is so inspiring for me in the anime world. But then also the Japanese anime, because when I was a child on French TV, you would only have Japanese anime. Ah. The only moment you could see American cartoons was Distant Channel on the Saturday evening. Mm -hmm. But all the TV, all, all the other times it was Japanese anime because I think there was a restriction on all American cultural products in France in the 80s when I was a child. So we had a lot also of French-Japanese collaboration yes. for cartoon that were fantastic. And I think uh, they were a huge inspiration for me uh, to make drawings. And as a result, I studied cartoons at the art school. I, I graduated in cartoons. Is there a particular discipline in your daily working life that you see as an essential ritual? I mean, I guess I do need to make sport. Every morning I do my own gym because I feel like in my activity, I don't paint, you know, vertical. I paint on the floor. So it's just if I don't stretch and if I don't like have good leg muscles and good like torso flexibility, I'm just not able to paint correctly because I need to stretch my arms and to move very fluidly and even though the legs are constantly bended. So I, I think this is something like that's really a ritual for me. And then I also have some rituals, obviously, to work, like to paint. I put music very, very loud and it's my playlist that I've prepared uh, mm -hmm. before. I spend a lot of time preparing them and then I need to eat something very sugary uh, to start. <laughs> <laughs> that's great if you could live with just one work of art what would it be i mean that probably would be a song um that's nice i but which one <laughs> i will i will probably hate it after a day <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and lastly what is art for 
Hmm. It is for escape. It's to escape. But I do not think escape is a disengagement with the world. I think escape is how you build alternatives. And you can only change if you've seen alternatives are possible, even in the fictional world. So I do think that escape is a political act. Camille, thank you so much. <laughs> thank you very much. Camille Enroe has recently published two books with the publisher Hatcher Kants, Milky Ways, priced £22, and Mother Tongue, priced £48. And that's it for this episode, and indeed for this year. Please subscribe to A Brush With wherever you're listening, and do give us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. Do also subscribe to our sister podcast, The Week in Art, a deep dive into the latest big art world stories, the top shows, and the key issues every week. And please subscribe to The Art Newspaper at theartnewspaper.com. We're on X, formerly known as Twitter, at Tan Audio, and on Facebook, Instagram, and Threads. Production, editing, and sound design on A Brush With by David Clack, and the producer is Louis Jeb. Thanks also to Daniela Hathaway, a big thank you to Camille on road we'll be back in february bye for now a brush with is sponsored by bloomberg connects download bloomberg connects today and discover cultural institutions on demand